Romans chapter 5. And we're going to be all over the scriptures. But we're going to start here because it's such an integral part of, of what um, we're going to look at today. You guys will, if you've been here the last few weeks, you'll remember we're, we're going through a sermon series called The Word Made Flesh. And it's really looking at that statement we read just a few moments ago about the person of Christ. Who Jesus is. We wanted to, to very um, intentionally focus upon the person of Christ during this time um, so that we had just clear understanding as to who he is, what he has done, and how, what that means for our life. So we're going to start in Romans chapter 5, uh, verse 6, and we're going to read through verse 11. You can read with me see what it says. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more. Now that we are reconciled, Shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of God. Well, it's not new information, uh, you know, to know that this time of year, everywhere you look is about Christmas, right? Everywhere you look is about Christmas. Shelves are empty at Target. Uh, Amazon literally collapsed this week. Literally collapsed, shut down. Hot chocolates in every home. We, we, we made hot chocolate last night and took it to, uh, to this little Wilshire Wonderland. Anybody did that yet? Anybody done it? It's really cool. You should do it. Wilshire Park, they have this you know, light thing, and it's, it's really awesome. And we fixed all these cups of hot chocolate for our kids not to drink any of it. So it was, it was great. And Christmas trees, they're at homes, you know, waiting for the shining moment where we're at the end of... The month of December. I told Jesse, I feel like our home is at its best when it's decorated for Christmas. It's where we're just, we're thriving. We're thriving when we got Christmas decorations going. You know, our world generally responds to Christmas and celebrates the holidays. That's not new in America. That, that happens. However, we know that that celebration of Christmas um, in America doesn't necessarily imply anything about Christianity. It's very void of any spiritual realities in a lot of ways. Many people across the country, man, every year celebrate Christianity. And they may be able to communicate it's the birth of Jesus. But they don't really understand what they're celebrating. Why is the birth of Jesus so significant? We know Christmas is about Christ coming into the world as a baby. We know that. Many people know that. Truly God becoming truly man. And he lived a life. He died a death that we deserve to die. He rose from the grave so that we would be saved. Very many people have that uh, perspective, I guess you could say, when you look at a mass grand scale of things in America. The Son of Man came into the world to seek and to save the lost. Think about that. It's not uncommon for someone to celebrate Christmas yet. Miss that entire reality. And you may be able to connect the dots specifically. Thanks, Daryl. Always coming in hot. You may be able to connect the dots between Christmas and Christianity easily. Because you maybe grew up in the church, or, or maybe not, but you grew up in an evangelical culture, maybe you could say. But there's another problem that we generally struggle with as Christians. To some extent, every one of us who proclaim Christ probably find ourselves in this camp, and it's, and it's here. 
You profess Christ, you profess faith in Christ. You profess that you know him. You profess that you hope in him. And you profess that you know what is to come when the moment when, when you see him face to face and everything's going to be made new. You profess to believe in that. But you fail to locate how this hope and what has happened in Christ and the hope that we have of what will be, how it actually impacts our present moment. How does it impact your life right now? Many of, many of us are probably left asking, either consciously or subconsciously, does the gospel really impact my life right now in any real way? Is, is Christianity really practical for me in any real way? Paul Tripp, he's an author, he calls this the gospel gap. I think it's a beautiful way to say it. There's this gap between what we know of, to be true about God and what he has accomplished and shown us in the biblical narrative. That's, there, is, there is a gap between those things and how we live our life, what governs us, what directs us, what impacts our every moment. In 2 Peter 1, verses 8 and 9, it says this. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. What Peter's doing here in this passage, he's introducing this middle category of Christianity that is legitimate. This middle category of Christianity that many of us, I think, probably find ourselves in right now. And it's this. We're ineffective and unfruitful in our knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, you know certain things about him. You know certain things about Jesus. You can communicate all the major basic tenets of the faith. That's not hard. You can communicate what he's done in the world. Why that should even give you eternal hope. But right now, functionally speaking, this knowledge is proving unfruitful in any real way presently. You still struggle with the same sins that you did before Christ. You still battle anxiety and depression and general hopelessness in your life. Your belief in Jesus is disconnected from your present reality. That's what Paul, uh, what I think Peter means when he says ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge. There's nothing bearing fruit in your life in it. And the second thing it says here is that, Peter says in this, in this verse, is that we're ineffective or unfruitful because there is a nearsightedness. We're nearsighted. What I think Peter means is that even though we are Christians, we only see what's in front of us and we miss the entire grand narrative of what God's doing in the world. Some of these things, who we've been made to be in Christ through the Holy Spirit and what will be true of us one day when we stand before him. Peter even says that there's a way that we live our lives that can forget that we have been cleansed from our former sins. There's, there's a category in the Christian life that lives as if Jesus really didn't cleanse you from your sin. Is that maybe you today? I like to call it uh, a functional theology. Some of you have heard me say this before, maybe. Many of us have been in the church for years. We grew up in the church. We know on an intellectual level the basic tenets of the faith. But on a street level, you hide from being known by others. And you do this because you're really ashamed of who you are. You get angry because what's been done against you. And you do this because you want justice to roll down. And you work your fingers to the bone because at the end of the day, you think that what you do in this life is going to give you some type of eternal commendation. 
when you succeed. And this is what I would say about these, these things. How you live your life is what you really believe. How you live is what you believe. What I think is at the heart of Christian discipleship in the church is connecting our lives to the redemption that is in Christ. That's what discipleship is. How do we, in a real way, connect who we know Jesus to be on a functional, real level in our life? That's the task of discipleship. Christianity shouldn't be this, like, up in the clouds, disconnected from our thoughts, emotions, from our circumstances. Christian theology is only real, genuine, and powerful when it is functional. When it changes who you are. What I want to do this morning is I want to demonstrate through uh, this statement, right, that, that, we, that we read earlier, the, the, the third stanza, if you will, of that statement. I want to demonstrate how the work of Christ, which is what it talks about there, the theology of what he accomplished in his life, how that impacts you right now. In other words, what I hope you walk away with today is this, is that you would have an understanding of what it means for you to truly believe the gospel and how it functionally plays out in your life. How, how it changes who you fundamentally are when you say this is who you believe in. So in our statement today, we're examining this part of the, the statement that basically answers this question. The question that's before us today is what did God accomplish through the person and work of Christ? What did he accomplish? And this is how our statement answers it. Um, could you put it up there, Devin? Starting with the third stanza. It says this, for us, he, Jesus, kept the law. He atoned for sin and he satisfied God's wrath. He took our filthy rags and he gave us his righteous robe. What an action-packed, full of juice passage or segment of that statement right there. The question that flows, as I've already said, from this, the question that this is answering is what did God really accomplish for us? What did he really accomplish in the person and work of Christ? What, and what does this mean for our life now? Now, there are many things that we can say about these particular realities in this passage or in this, this uh, statement. There's many things we can say. There's many things it teaches us. But for today, I'm going to focus on three statements that are at the very beginning. He kept the law, he atoned for sin, and he satisfied God's wrath. What I want to do in a couple of moments is I want to, I want to show you how these seemingly high, inaccessible realities and truths in the Bible actually impact who you are right now. The first thing it says here is that for us, Jesus kept the law. If Jesus kept the law, then you are not defined by your success or your failure. God doesn't look at your performance as the basis of your justification before him. Justification is a fancy way of just basically saying whether or not you have a right to be there. Whether or not you have a right to be in his presence and to be with him eternally. God doesn't look at your performance. If you are in Christ as the basis for your justification to stand before him as a righteous man or woman. He looks at Christ's work. And it was perfect. The active obedience of Christ, which is what this is showing us, that Jesus kept the law. He, he actively obeyed God. He actively lived an obedient life for us. The active obedience of Christ for you means this. He has kept the law on your behalf perfectly. We are not righteous. We never could be righteous, but he is. 
So here are two important notes on his work for us if we believe in that and we cling to that. Here's, here's two important truths for us about this. One, when you fail, it is not Christ's work. Or it is Christ's work, not yours. When you fail, it is Christ's work and not yours. Some of you here, you're battling through sin, through addiction. Man, some of the things that you guys are carrying because I get uh, the privilege of being in your life and walking with you. Some of the things that you guys are carrying are really heavy and hard. And you're rightfully discouraged. Some of you are suffering. Some of you are, are struggling through sin habits. You're trying to be strong, but at the end of the day, you just can't. You can't. You give in to temptation. You get discouraged. You do what you don't want to do. Paul says this well in Romans chapter 7. He says, I find it to be a law that when I do right, evil lies close at hand. Man, I'm doing right, but man, it feels like evil is just around the corner. I delight in God's law in my inner being, but I see in my members, which my life, in my life, I see in my life another law that's waging war against my mind and making me captive to the law of sin. How many of us feel that way? Paul says, wretched man that I am. Who could deliver me from this? That, that I can't not do what I don't want to do. Is what he says. And his response is, thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can all probably identify with that. But the Christian hope says that Jesus kept the law for us. The righteous requirement that we could not keep. Jesus kept that for us. So when we fail, it's not our failure that God sees. It is Christ's perfect and active obedience on our behalf that he sees. Isn't that amazing? But not just when you fail. This is probably what we need to hear more than anything. When you succeed, it is Christ's work and not yours. Some of you are extremely gifted. Man, we have incredible gifts in our church. We saw half of them on display this morning. Some of us are extremely self-disciplined. It encourages me. Some of you are competent. Some of you are exceeding in areas. You're making a lot of money. You're doing so many things in your life. Those of us who fall in this, care, in this category need to hear the same thing as the failure. And it's this. It is Christ's work and not yours. Whether you feel like things are going great, whether you feel like things are going bad in your life, Jesus fulfilled the law for you. It's an alternate way to think about your life, if you, if you really consider it. To embrace Christ is to look to Him in the highest moments of self-exaltation and to look to Him in the lowest moments of self-humiliation. But I want to introduce a third category, an additional category to what it means when it says that He kept the law. This is what Romans 8, verses 3 and 4 says. It says that God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. God has done it. He says this, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order. So the reason he was sent was in order that this would happen, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So God did something in Christ that is more than just Jesus keeping the law on our behalf. Where we can stand before him totally justified no matter what we do. That most definitely is true, as I've already said. But Paul introduces something even more layered here. This is what he says. Through the work of Christ, God is actually fulfilling the law in us. The Christian life flows from our union with Christ now. 
What this means is that we work. We, we fulfill God's great glorious purposes in our lives, not because there's necessarily anything hanging in the balance as far as our eternal salvation. There's nothing hanging in the balance with whether or not God's eternal commendation is towards you. It is. He looks at you if you believe the gospel. This is the scandal of it. He looks at you if, believe the God, if you have believed the gospel and he says, well done, my good and faithful servant, because of the work of Christ. The work of Christ. But we also fulfill and pursue God's purposes in our lives because this is what God has accomplished for us. This was the very means and the very reason why we can live a righteous life now. The implication of the work of Christ is that we will live lives, if you have believed the gospel, that fulfill the righteousness of the law. Not as a means to justify ourselves, but because of what God has done for us in Christ. Ephesians 2 says this really well. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. If I could encourage you to memorize, uh, if there's a short list of mem- memorized passages you should memorize, it would be, one of them would be Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. But we're going to look at verses 8 through 10. And this is what it says. Some of you guys may know this. For it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. You, you didn't accomplish this, right? <clears throat> it is the gift of God. It's not a resor- result of your works, which means... Who you are before God has nothing to do with what you have done. It's not a result of your works. So that no one may boast. No one will stand before God one day and say, look at what I have done, Lord. Aren't you pleased with me? No one will say that one day. The scripture says every mouth will be stopped when his reality is, is shown to us. So instead, those who are in Christ, those who have this hope of salvation, of eternity with him, they do not boast in their works, they boast in his. But, this is what the next verse says. See that conjunction for, which is flowing from the previous verse. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. Here, Paul seems to be demonstrating that we receive this gift of eternal life, where we will stand fully and completely justified him before the Lord one day. 100%. It's going to happen. But the application of that now, the practical implication of that for your life, here and now, is that you walk in good works that God's already prepared for you in eternity. And it's because, not that the work of Christ was was deficient, but that the work of Christ was that powerful for you. that The righteous requirements would, would be fulfilled in your flesh. Or you can look at this, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 2. This is what it says. Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. The gospel which you received, in which you stand, and by which you were being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Leave it up there, Devin, because I'm going to walk through this quickly. What Paul is saying, the gospel according to Paul, we know this, is that it is the good news that Jesus has saved us from all that has held us in bondage, everything that held us in bondage. And it's good news that we've been freed unto an eternal hope in him. And he has accomplished in his flesh what we could not accomplish. So that when we receive him, we are justified before God. And Paul says, this is what you have received, past tense. This is the gospel in which you stand in presently. I'm clinging to it presently. And then it says, this is the one in which you are presently being saved from. Saved by, I would say. And how you know this is true... 
is that you are holding fast to this gospel word that was preached. An active participation in it. In other words, there's a present walking and a present abiding, a present activity in Christ. But that present walking, abiding activity is not accomplishing your righteousness whatsoever. Because of the next phrase, it says, unless you believe in vain. It's all about faith in Christ. But faith in Christ looks a particular way. What this means is that to actually believe that Jesus has kept the law for you is to walk a particular way now. Faith, according to Paul here, is only genuine to the level that it bears fruit in your life. It doesn't matter what you grew up in. It doesn't matter what you've done in your life. It doesn't matter how many mission trips you've gone on. The only thing that stands before God one day is your faith in Jesus. It's the only thing. Have you believed in him? Jesus keeping the law means that you are not defined by your success and your failure. But two, Jesus atoned for sin. Here's something I hear a lot of. When things are going well in our lives, we feel closer to God. If I knew how many times that I've talked to somebody about that, man, things are going so good. I feel like God's right there with me, you know, because I'm just killing it. I'm just, you know. I'm praying every, every morning. I'm reading the Bible every single day. You know, I'm giving all of my money back to the church. You know, and God's just so close. I feel him really, really close to me. And when things are going, when things are going poorly in our life, the opposite side, a.k.a. we're struggling with some particular sin, we're discouraged about something that's happened, we feel separated from God. That's our natural tendency. We don't think God is close to us. We feel as if he's absent. So there's even categories in the scripture where David writes constantly about And in this natural reflex, I think, is a fundamental breakdown of what God has ultimately done in the work of Christ when he atoned for sin. Here's here's five ways Jesus' atonement for our sin affects your life right now. Sin tells us that we're separated from God. Sin separates. But through Christ, God draws near. From birth, we're separated from God because of sin. But because of Christ, we're brought near by his blood. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ anymore. But two, sin also creates an inability in our life. Sin inhibits us. Christ enables us. Sin makes it impossible for us to live and think the way that we should in light of who God is. But because of Christ, sin has actually lost its power. The enemy is loud, but he's harmless because he's chained. It's all bark. It's no bite. Whereas we were underneath the folly of the enemy and we were unable to see what life should look like with God and in the world through Christ. We are finally able to experience life with God here and now and forever one day. But sin also has this effect on us. It it causes us to be delusional. What that means is that sin causes us to think that we know ourselves better than what we really do. And we don't. We think nothing's wrong with us, but really there is. We think that we are righteous, but we're not. We're delusional. But through Christ, we see how much we need God in our lives. We see how dependent we really are upon him. And also, how present he is with us no matter what we do. No matter how well things are going. And where we lived a life with our own views of what life is ultimately about, what it's really about, through the work of Christ... We can put off that life and we can live lives for and about the glory of God right now. 
That's what the work, the work of Christ does for us. The work of Christ also absorbs the judgment that was due. Sin has a consequence and it is judgment from God. We're under the judgment of God because we've rebelled against him. And as we're going to see in just a little bit, Christ actually absorbs that judgment for us. And the, and the fifth thing that sin does is it causes us to be hopeless. Sin leaves us hopeless without God in the world. Christ gives us eternal hope. We can't escape its effect. And because we can't escape the effect of sin, because of how deeply ingrained it is to us, we're hopeless. But through Christ, we have a future and we have a hope that transcends our circumstances and transcends everything about our life, reaches into eternity. And this is what it looks like to functionally believe that Jesus has taken care of sin at the cross. Jesus has atoned for sin. You may ask this question, if Jesus has atoned for our sin and rendered sin and Satan ultimately powerless, then why do we continue to return to it? Why do we continue to do that? If, that's, if Jesus has relieved us from this burden that we carry, how is it true that he atoned for sin, yet I'm still in it? And I'm still struggling in it. How can that be true? How can those two things be true? And here's three reasons I want to give you. Though we may not experience it immediately, the promises of the gospel can leave us 100% confident that you will be free from sin if you believe in Jesus. 100% confident. And the reason why is because Jesus rose from the grave. The second reason, though we may fall in sin, when Jesus went to the cross and atoned for it, he had your past, present, and future sins in mind. Which means you don't need a Savior beyond Jesus. You don't need a new one every single time you fall into sin. Jesus atoned for your past, present, and future sins. And the third reason, that we may fall into sin, how we respond will reveal everything we need to know about our standing before God. This is what 2 Corinthians 7 says, which is so helpful for us. 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 11. This is what it says. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. And what he's referencing is Paul wrote, wrote a, a letter to this Corinthian church, the church of Corinth. And the first letter he wrote was really offensive. He said a lot of things that were hurtful and discouraging for that church, you can almost say. So in, in his second letter, he's addressing that, 2 Corinthians 7. And he says, I rejoice not because you were grieved. The church was grieved because of the letter. But because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief. So that you suffer no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. But also what eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What longing. What zeal. What punishment. At every point you have proven yourself innocent in the matter. So back to my original point. You're left asking how, if Jesus has atoned for my sin, how is sin and Satan rendered powerless if I'm continuing in it? And these are the questions I would ask you as you face whatever present struggle. It's the same questions or the same points that, that Paul brings out in this passage. You'll see there at the very end of it. Are you earnest in your life when you fall susceptible to temptation? Are you earnest 
and eager to be free from that? Then take heart, Christian. Take heart. Jesus' work is for you. Jesus has defeated the power of sin. Here's another question. Are you eager to clear yourself after you sin? Then take heart, Christian. Jesus' work is for you. Jesus has atoned for sin. Are you filled with indignation when you do it because of your sin? Then take heart. Do you tremble with a healthy fear to think that you have sinned against a holy God? You can be confident that Jesus' work is atoned for your sin. Are you zealous to do whatever it takes to be free from it? To find freedom in certain areas? Maybe that means like in bringing in other brothers and sisters to your life, to your struggle. Being open and vulnerable. Maybe that means doing things you never thought you would do. Humiliating yourself, you think, before others so that you can be free from it. Then you can take heart. That Jesus' work will not fall short for what you need. It's a true hope. And finally it says, are you, are, are you willing? He says, what punishment? The question is, are you ready? Are you willing to embrace the punishment, the consequences that you, that you may face as you repent and you confess? There's real consequences we face for our sin here and now. But if we have a willingness to face those because we are so grieved at heart and our sin against God, we can be confident that Jesus will atone for that sin. And though there may be consequences this side of eternity, you will be pure and spotless with him one day. If your answer is yes to these questions, as you think about, man, how you're struggling through whatever it is, all of us come bringing tons of baggage into this room. If you answer yes to these questions, as you think about how you're responding to your struggles and to your sin habits, then you can be confident that the atonement of Christ, where he took on your sin and he gave you his righteous road, will prove effective for you. So you fight. So you confess. And you seek him, knowing with 100% confidence that God will do immeasurably more in your life than you could have ever asked or imagined. He will. The last point I'll make today is this. Jesus satisfied God's wrath. If Jesus satisfied God's wrath, here's, here's the downstream implication that probably we don't think about. You can forgive, forbear, and love other people. What do you think about Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11? This is an incredible passage. The depths of this are incalculable. But here's some of these, these things that stand out. I'm going to read Romans 5, 6 through 11 again, which is what we started with. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners in our sin, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? You know, there's some questions that Jesus must answer if his offer to us of salvation is actually real on any level. There's some questions that's got to be answered. One is this, the wrath of God. That has to be dealt with according to Scripture. Because, because of this, we, we've talked about this the last few weeks, I think. God is completely just in his punishment of sin. He's not only a loving God. He is a, let me say this, he is only a loving God. 
if sin does not go unpunished with him. And to an infinite, eternally holy God, sin bears the weight of an eternal punishment and eternal vindication of all the wrong that's been done against him. Because he's holy, because he's righteous. And what the gospel claims, what, what has been taken care of for us now, if you have believed in him, you've placed your faith in him, he's, he's, he's your refuge, right? You run to him. What the gospel claims is that all the wrath stored up for sinners for eternity was poured out on the Son of God. All of it. He perfectly, horribly, gruesomely satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf. An eternity's worth of wrath was satisfied in the life of Jesus. What an incredible truth. This is ultimately the reason we celebrate the birth of Christ. This is why we celebrate it. It is tied to the cross. We celebrate the birth not just because God appeared into creation, but because God appeared as our salvation. And in his body of flesh, Jesus absorbed the full wrath of God reserved for us for eternity. And you may ask this question, how in the world could one man, one man's life, the suffering of one man, for honestly, if you look at the scriptures, was only for a few hours. It wasn't for an eternity. He died on the cross and it spanned over the course of a day. It didn't even fill up the whole day. It was over by lunchtime or mid-afternoon. How could that satisfy the eternal wrath of God for eternity? How could the wrath of God reserved for the sins of the world be satisfied for eternity by just a few hours of suffering? And this is the answer to that question. Because of who Jesus is. It's not the breadth or the magnitude of the man, nor the amount of time that he held on the cross, but it's instead, it's the preciousness of his life that he gave. An ounce of suffering for the one true living God is infinitely unimaginable. And therefore, even if it were but for a second, it would have been infinitely more than what we could have ever done on our behalf. And it would have been infinitely unjust. And more perfectly acceptable than any sacrifice could have ever been if it would have done by anybody else. Jesus, because of who he was as God, because of what he did, he satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf. Isn't that amazing? No angel could have done that. No angel could have done what he had done. No mere man, no matter how great his life was, no matter what he had done in his life, could have done what he did. And it's why he had to come. It had to be Jesus it had to be Jesus. It had to be God. Only the Son of God can satisfy the wrath of God. And see the wrath of God. See the Son of God. See the satisfaction of God's wrath in the Son of God. So here's the implication. When we see what Jesus has satisfied in his death, when we see the eternal Son of God on the cross, when we hear the words of Jesus on the cross after just a few hours, say, it is finished then we can forgive and forbear. And we can love. Our functional theology in the realm of our relationships is demonstrated in how we respond when we are hurt by our brothers and sisters. You want to know what you believe about the work of Christ on the cross? How do you respond when your other brothers in Christ, other sisters in Christ, hurt you? How do you respond? If you want to know what you think about Jesus satisfying the wrath of God, then look at how you respond when someone hurts you in the church. How you respond in these times 
tells us everything we need to know about what we really believe. If we live our lives in the gospel gap that I talked about earlier, this, this gap, then we will look for that vindication. We're going to look for that vindication. We're going to look for ways to satisfy this anger that's in our hearts. Maybe it's through calling them and tell them, tell them what you really think. You know? Or maybe it's through suppressing it, running away, and thinking unimaginable things about them. Or whatever else your response is. But man, if we truly understand that Jesus satisfied the wrath of God, then we know that if a person that hurt you is truly repentant and truly sorrowful for what they have done, how they have hurt you, then you know the wrath of God has been satisfied in that person. There is no wrath left. What does Jesus say? Who's here to condemn? That's what he tells the adulterous woman. The wrath stored up for others who were in Christ has already been satisfied. And if God looks at that person with eternal delight and eternal joy now, how could we look upon that person with any contempt or unforgiveness? Knowing what he has accomplished for him, for them. The gospel does not deny the hurt and the pain that we feel in relationships, does it? We will be hurt in the church. I can say this, and they can both be true. The church is the greatest place on earth. The church is the messiest place on earth. The, the, the work of Christ does not deny this hurt and this pain that we experience in relationships. If anything, the message of Jesus gives us an eternal acknowledgement that things aren't the way they should be. In our lives, things aren't the way they should be. In our world, things aren't the way they should be, and most definitely in our relationships. We all can sympathize with that. But the gospel offers us a real answer where nothing else does. A real pathway towards reconciliation and forgiveness. It's a real pathway. It's not fake. The church, man, when she is believing and she is clinging to this message of hope in Christ, she is filled with a relational beauty that doesn't exist anywhere else because it's where forgiveness flourishes. 2 Corinthians 5, um, we're going to use this as our passage for the Lord's Supper in just a few moments. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 and 19 says this. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was actually reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us this message of reconciliation. Now, this passage most definitely is about the reconciliation between me and you and all those who trust in Christ and God. So it's definitely about that. But the language of Paul here seems to enable a, a, a more general principle of the reconciliation that the world and creation is going to feel through the ministry and the work of Christ. There seems to be a sense in this passage where Jesus is talking about a ministry of, generation, of reconciliation that's pretty broad. God through Christ has introduced into the world a ministry of reconciliation, first with God. Primarily with God, but secondarily with one another. Isn't that amazing? And what this means is that what we really believe, our functional theology, will be seen in our relationships. It'll be seen. It'll be experienced. My question for you as we conclude today, um, where is that gospel gap at in your life? 
Where's that gap between I know this to be true, yet for whatever reason, my life does not really reflect it. Be reminded of the beauty of God in Christ and turn to him. We're going uh, to transition to the Lord's Supper right now. Jay's going to come up and lead us. And uh, what we have is a tangible reminder of that work. And it's, it's God's grace on our life to be able to partake of this regularly together and proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. So let him come now.